2 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, is the passage that's been assigned, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, and, and I'll just jump right in there. It says, but, Paul says, but if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance or his face, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, this morning, and we ask, Lord, this morning that you would speak to us that your Holy Spirit, again, like we have just read, would give us through that mirror, through that glass, dimly, Father, as we look from earth to heaven and we can't see the fullness of it all. But just as we look through, as it were, through that, and we just get a, a bit of a glimpse of the glory, Father, as we this morning would do that, as we look into your word again, we pray that that would be re something would be revealed to us that would continue to do this process of changing us and transforming us literally from glory to glory from these little glimpses of who you are and of what's coming and so father i just ask again that that would be true this morning as we look into your word that it would do this in our hearts you know each person here you know each need Father, you're the only one that can meet the needs. It's only you through your Holy Spirit, through your Son. And so I just ask, God, that you would do that this morning. And I ask that you would just give me strength in, in my weakness, God, that you would give me strength, and that you would speak for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have four things that I want to, just the way that in reading this passage, and it's this, this, there's verses in these portions that were given to me that are like they, in some ways, are, I wouldn't say they're my most favorite verses in the Bible, but they're just awesome verses. 
in the Word of God. One of them is at the end of this chapter. There's another one next week that I've got the privilege to preach on. And, and so I read this and I just go, there's so much in here and God just helped me somehow to, to convey the truth that is in here and, and how can we ever do that in a short period of time. But, but as I was studying and, and just how do I put this four things, so, so I'm gonna organize it that way, four things that were impressed on my heart that I wanna lay it out that way to you this morning. And the first one, number one, I think the most obvious one is simply the glory of God. That's a huge one, right? The glory of God, our brother talked about the glory of God in creation and we see the image or sort of the, we see it there, right? And, and how, how it's, it's in creation, what is it really like? What, what is the glory of God really like when we would be able someday to look on the glory of God? And even now we see it kind of in these glimpses as we'll get into a little bit later on. But let's try to define glory. The word comes up 13 times, 13 times. Did you notice that? The repetition of glory, 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 glorious, glorious. And it's like, Paul, I think probably as I thought about this, maybe intentionally as a writer in the style of his writing, of course, led by the spirit of God, but we, we have the humanness of this in Paul as he writes, and he's probably repeating it to emphasize it, right? If you've ever done anything like that, speaking or, or writing, and you want to emphasize a point, you say it over and over and over. And I think that's maybe what Paul's doing here as he talks about glory and glory and glory 13 times. How do we define the glory of God? Well, if you have studied that, and if you have ever tried to come up with a clear definition of the glory of God, you know the answer to that question. You just can't define it. It would be like trying to explain who God is. Like, how do we define who God is? There's a sense in which that word glory is almost undefinable. And yet I'm going to try to do that thing that we're saying is impossible by giving you kind of a list of definitions to try to put some kind of sense in our mind, what is the glory of God? So let's try to do that. So if you were to take Strong's Concordance, some of you will know what that is, or maybe you do it online. I do all my stuff on my computer now. I don't use that book anymore, but whatever. If you take Strong's Concordance and you look up the word glory, it is in the original language, the word doxa. Many of you will know that. And, and this is the definition, and this is where you go, well, what in the world is that talking about? The definition in Strong's Concordance is something that is very apparent or an, op an opinion or an estimate. And then it's like, okay, I don't understand like what, what is going on here. And so you go to Vine's dictionary, right? The old standard Greek dictionary, and you go in there and, and you look in there and, and you find something kind of similar, but it's a little bit more what we might think about about glory. So, so W.E. Vine, this is not the whole definition, but a portion of what he says, he says that glory is a good opinion. It is praise, honor, an appearance, and this gets a little more maybe where we can kind of get a grasp of it, an appearance commanding respect. Okay, there we go. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. And, and then he adds these words, magnificence and excellence. And still all of that is like, okay, I still, I'm trying to struggle. What is the glory of God? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to two different people that you've probably heard of before. One is John Piper. And John Piper commenting on Isaiah 6, the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and, and he says this, he says, from which he says, I stab at a definition. So Piper's saying, I don't know how to define this, but I'm going to take a stab at it. And so this is what he says, and I love this. He says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. 
It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to apprehend. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest or made visible. And then he says, here's an attempt at a definition. So he keeps you know, stabbing at the definition. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of God's manifold perfections. The manifestation of his character and his worth and his attributes, all of his perfections and greatness are beautiful as they are seen, and there are many of them. That is why I use the word manifold. Here, is, here it is in another sentence. So here's, a, I think, a third or a fourth time he's taken a run at the definition. And he says this, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Now, I love all of those things. And I think we could take all of these different thoughts and try to package them and try to get a handle on them. And then Rick Warren, Rick Warren has this definition for the glory of God. And I, and I love the way he expresses it. He says, what is the glory of God? It is who God is. It is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, the atmosphere of his presence. Don't you love that definition? Let me read it again. He says, it is the essence of his nature, the weight of his importance, the radiance of his splendor, the demonstration of his power, the atmosphere of his presence the glory of God. There's an association with the glory of God and light. And um, that comes up in, not so much in the, well, it does come up in the passage that I'm going to deal with, and the light and the reflection in Moses' face and, and that, but, but it comes up more in the next portion next week that I'm going to get into. But, but the idea of light being associated with the glory of God. So here's another uh, paragraph that I picked up. I don't even know where I got this. I'm not sure what the source is. But whoever the writer was, he says this. He says, when we think of the glory of the Lord, the image of brilliant light often comes to our minds. And then he says, that is certainly appropriate as scripture often describes the glory of God in terms of a light that shines brighter than anything we experience on earth. That word that light that appears here in this passage, the word literally means the idea of revealing. It's a light that it reveals. It enables us. Here's where we go. Here's where it gets practical. It enables us to see. It enables us to see who God is. And in that sense, in some way, some capacity, be able to know him. So now I'm going to take one more stab at a definition for glory. Are you ready? One more. This is the last one. So this is, I guess, my own definition of what glory is, just taking all this and putting it together. So I would see glory like this. Glory is the brilliance of the moral light of the holiness of God. And it is a light that is far greater and brighter than any light that we know. The glory of God. Have we even in some way, even in all of that, have any sense of how awesome it is. The glory of God. And we saw it, tried somehow to grasp it, but it really is ultimately, isn't it, something that we can only know through revelation. There is no way we can intellectually define or contain the glory of God. It is only something that can be revealed. So that's number one, the glory of God. Number two, 
glory of the old and new covenants and the glory of God in the old covenant, the glory of God in the new covenant. There's clearly in the verses that I read a comparison. It's obvious right there in the passage as Paul compares the old covenant, the new covenant, the old covenant being law. It's interesting the way he describes that old covenant, and I know our brother would have dealt with that thoroughly last week, but that old covenant, verse 7, he describes it this way, calls it in verse 7, a ministry of death. Isn't that interesting? A ministry of death, the, the, the law, the old system, engraved on stones. Think about a stone, something that is hard. It is, it is unbending. It is rigid. And so here's this old covenant, the law, the ministry of death engraved on stones. And Paul says it was glorious. There was a time that it had some measure of glory, but then he uses this term in verse 7, that it is passing away. It is passing away. In other words, what is he saying? It was only for a little while. In verse 9, he describes that old covenant this way. He describes it as a ministry of condemnation. So think of all these words, stack all these words up, a ministry of death engraved on stones. It is a ministry of condemnation. But even that system, if you will, the law, that basically, what did the law say? The law says you're all guilty. That's what it says. You're all lost. I'm simplifying it, obviously, incredibly. But kind of the heart of what Paul is getting at here in this passage and kind of the heart behind it is that the law condemns. The law points out our sin and the law sets a standard that is impossible ultimately for us to achieve in ourselves. That's why it's a ministry of death. That's why it's a ministry of condemnation. But even in all of that, Paul says it had glory. It had glory. I want to go back to the book of Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to read some verses here. Just bear with me as I read these verses, because it's going to connect, obviously, to what we have in this passage. But in Exodus 33, in verse 18, we have Moses, and Moses comes, and, and, and there's a scene where, where God, because of the sin of the people, is not going to go with them, and Moses pleads with God, please go with us, and the Lord's going to go. And then in verse 18, in Exodus 33, he says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me. In other words, the thought here, no one's going to see the fullness of my glory. No one will be able to do that and live. And the Lord said, here's a place by me. You shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. So think of all the layers of what is going on here. God is saying, if I reveal myself fully in my glory, you're going to die, Moses. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. There's this, there's this little cleft here, this little crevice in the rock. I'm going to put you in there. And, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my hand over you to kind of shield you, to veil some of it. And then I'm just going to turn my back to you. And you're just going to get this glimpse of my glory. That's all that Moses saw of the glory of God. It would have been awesome though, right? But that's all he saw. And so you come to chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. I will write on these the tablets, the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. 
be ready in the morning, come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. So Moses does that, go all the way down to verse 29 of chapter 34, and this is what it says, Exodus 34, 29. Now it was so, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, there's that light, right? And, and here it is literally a, a physical light being manifested as Moses got this glimpse, think about it, through a rock covered by the hand of God, just the back of God, and that's enough literally to cause Moses' face to shine. And Moses doesn't even know that the skin of his face is shining. He says, well, he talked with them, and Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. Moses called to them, and Aaron, all the rulers of the congregation, returned. Moses talked with them. Afterward, the children of Israel came near, gave them commandments. All the Lord had spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. Paul's talking about this here. With Think about this ministry of death, this ministry of condemnation, and, and it had a glory, didn't it? I mean, it, it was it's, the glory of this was so incredible that literally Moses' face shone after all of that, you know, that ability that he had, and it, his face literally reflected that glory of God. So there was a glory in the Old Covenant. Now, I say all that to go to where Paul's going here in this passage, and he's comparing that old covenant, which we go, wow, that would be so cool. Like, imagine, you know, seeing the back of God, and imagine literally your face literally glowing and shining. Wouldn't that be amazing? And basically, Paul's saying, yeah, that was impressive, but it's nothing compared to what we have in Christ. Not even close. And I think, I think if you're like me, certainly at times of my life, I'm kind of like, well, I'd like to see the external things. Like, that would be really awesome to see some external thing, like light radiating or something like these people got to see, or fire on a mountain, or whatever it is that was so awesome and overwhelming externally, physically speaking. But Paul's basically saying, yeah, there was a glory in that for sure. But the glory that we have in Christ is so much better. In verse 8, he talks about comparing that ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, and he calls it the, the ministry of the Spirit, he says, is more glorious. In verse 9, he says, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. And he says that old system, that old covenant is passing away. It is passing away. It is passing away. Three times we find that phrase in these verses that I read, we find it in verse 7 and verse 11 and verse 13. So it's like Paul saying, listen, don't hold on to all of that stuff. Don't think that's the epitome of some awesome thing that God was doing. It's like Paul saying, I'm telling you, God is doing something much more incredible inside every one of your hearts. If you know Christ as Savior and the Spirit of God literally resides in you. And that old system, which seems so you know, wow, if we could only see that, it's like Paul saying there's something more incredible happening. We have something so much better. So that's the glory of the old covenant compared to the new. And, 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 and then I want to talk about this. The third thing I have down here is that glory veiled. 
and we went back into the Old Testament there, and we read that picture of the scene of Moses veiling his face. In verse 12 here in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Therefore, since we have such hope, because we have such something so much better than that old system, even though it seems more impressive, Paul says, we got something way more impressive. Like we literally have God living inside of us. You ever think about that? I, I've so many times I've thought to myself, if, if only that one truth would sink deeply into my heart and soul, it would transform the way that I live. That I literally have God, the Holy Spirit of God, who is God, residing inside of me. I'm the temple, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And if that could sink deeply into us, would that not itself transform the way that we live and the way that we approach our life? And so Paul's basically saying, you've got something so much better. And in verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, because we have that reality of God that they didn't have, they did not have that. Yeah, they saw the lightning and the thunder and the mountain smoking, and they saw this, and they saw this light, and they saw all of that, and that seems way more impressive. But Paul says, man, we have something so much better. And so he says, I'm going to use great boldness of speech. He says, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And then verse 14, he says, their minds... We're blinded. He says, until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. The idea of being blinded here is that the eyes literally are calloused over or covered. And he's saying back then, it's like God was doing this massively impressive thing and they were seeing it and, 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 and yet their eyes were blinded in many respects to actually who God was. And, and we would think the opposite, right? We would think, wow, if God came and did something awesome like that, and boom, and all the stuff I've talked about, we would think those people really knew God. Like we kind of, well, you know, no, Paul's saying the opposite. He's saying they didn't get it. Their eyes were blinded. We see it way more clearly through the Holy Spirit than they saw it. And then he says this, and he says, now, he says, till this day, the same veil remains unlifted. What is, he, what is he saying here? He's saying that even for the Jews at that time, and here it's specific, obviously, to the nation of Israel, that they still can't see, and here he's going to turn it now to Christ, they still can't see really who God is, the glory of God, they can't see the person of Jesus Christ as being the Son of God. And it's like that veil is over them. And they cannot see it. Even to this day, he said, a veil lies on their heart. They are blinded to the reality of who Christ is. He, again, he's speaking specifically here in the context to Israel and the nation, the Jews in general, the unbelieving Jews who do not see Christ. They do not see the new covenant. They are still holding on to the old and trying to follow the old. But it's like Paul saying that's passed away. There's something so much better in Christ that they could not see it. And for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who does not believe, they cannot see that light, if you will, that glory of God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to get into that a little bit more next week. Now, I'm going to end with the fourth 
thing that I have, give myself a little bit more time. So we've talked about the glory of God. We've talked about the glory of the old and new covenants and kind of this comparison that Paul's making. We, we've talked about this idea of glory being veiled and, and there's some, they saw something, but they couldn't really see and understand. And it wasn't, but, but here we get into now the fourth thing, glory revealed by the Spirit. And this is where Paul goes when he talks about this veil and it's over them and it hasn't been lifted. It's like they can't see. There's a blindness there. And then he gets to verse 16, and I love this verse. He says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Isn't that so beautiful? And isn't that so true? I think for those of you that were saved later in life, you would understand this better than those of us that were saved maybe when we were young or grew up in a Christian home and we kind of knew many of these things and we and it's not that we didn't we needed to get saved too and we needed to be born again of the Holy Spirit whatever point that happened God knows it in our youth or wherever it was somewhere along the way but, but it's like we kind of almost grew up knowing all of these things right it, and, and having some understanding of it but when I think of someone and I know there are many of you here this morning who you came to Christ later in life and you never saw this stuff before you never understood it like this whole thing about Jesus and the gospel and the cross and it made maybe no sense to you maybe you thought it was crazy it was insane whatever I don't know what you thought about it or it just didn't matter or it was just religion and in that moment in that moment and we were singing about it in one of the songs when you turned to the Lord and the Lord took the veil away and you were able to see what you could not see before. In John 3, you don't need to turn to it, but in John 3, Jesus says this as he talks with Nicodemus. He says to him, John 3, verse 3, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, unless you have the Holy Spirit, the new birth, the Spirit of God within you, you just can't see this. It's like there's a veil over you. You are blind to it. And again, those of you that could testify to later in life, and you had lived your life in a certain way, and when the gospel light shone in, when God was revealed to you, when you turned to the Lord and that veil was taken away, what a difference in your life. To be able to see things now that you couldn't see before, not physically, literally, but be able to see by the Holy Spirit revealing truth to you that you did not believe before. And what did it do? It transformed your life. That's what this is all about, isn't it? I love verse 17. I love verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Literally, there is freedom. Well, what do we take out of that? Well, that means if we're followers of Christ, we can do whatever we want to do, right? Sometimes that verse is taken that way. And I understand in some ways there's an application there, but that's not really the context of this verse, is it? 
What is the liberty? What is the freedom that is being spoken about here as we see the Spirit of the Lord, there's liberty? What is he saying? He's saying we could see things now we could never see before. And the blindness that was there, that was holding us, in a sense, in a bondage without Christ, now through the Holy Spirit and the revelation of the Holy Spirit, there is a freedom to see Christ, and there is a freedom from the law and its oppression, and its condemnation, and its fear, and its judgment, the hardness of the stone tablets of the law now brings no condemnation to me in Christ. Because I am justified by him, in him. And I am saved by his grace. And, and I stand with a peace now before God that no person could have had in that old covenant system the way we have in Christ. There is a liberty and a freedom in that because our Savior has done it all for us. And he has fulfilled the law and he has dealt with the consequence of the law and sin on the cross. He has paid for it all. He has even conquered death coming out of the grave. Think of all that he has done for us. So brothers and sisters, we have this incredible freedom in Christ and this incredible liberty in Christ. And the Spirit of God, as we walk with the Holy Spirit, as we are led by the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit of God reveals Christ to us and reveals truth to us, there is a, a deeper understanding of this liberty that I stand in in Jesus Christ. And it's not a liberty to say, I'm going to live however I want to live and do whatever I want to do. It's a liberty that says I'm free from that condemnation and I choose to surrender my life to Jesus Christ and to yield it all to him because I love him because he loved me first. What an incredible freedom we have in Christ. And then we have this awesome, awesome, awesome verse. In verse 18, he says, but we all, he says, we all, those of us that know Christ. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, can I ask you this question? Have you been born again? Is, is there a time in your life where you trusted Jesus Christ? You turned to the Lord and you, whatever went on in your mind, and I'm going to put words in your mind, but you have turned to the Lord and you have trusted in him. You've confessed your sin. You have asked for forgiveness. And, and the spirit of God has come into your life. There is nothing more important than that. Because one day you are going to die. And I'm going to die. And if I don't know Christ, and I don't have him, and I don't have the Holy Spirit of God within me, I'm headed to a place that is judgment and condemnation. But in Christ and with Christ, that liberty and freedom to know that I'm going to be with him in heaven and look on his glory. There is nothing more important than knowing where you are going to go after you die. That's why Christ came. That's why he went to the cross. And I would plead with you, and people would be so willing to talk to you if you're not sure. And I just plead with you to get that, that issue settled today. But then Paul says, we all, we as followers of Christ that know him, that are born again of the Holy Spirit, he says, but we all with unveiled face, it's like the veil is gone, take it off so you can see, he says, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, his likeness, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. There is, there is like books and books of stuff you could write on that verse, so I've got seven minutes to cover it. Hmm. 
the transforming effect of God's glory in our lives. The face of Moses, you could see it, right? It had touched him in some way, and it shone, and the people couldn't handle it, and they put the veil over, but now it's like Paul says, we're just going to take the veil off, right? And we're just going to look on the glory of God with unveiled faces. We see his glory, but we don't see, this is so important, we don't see the fullness of it. I think it's still true that if in these old bodies, these sinful bodies, if we saw the fullness of the glory of God, I'm convinced we would die, just like Moses would have died. There's a day coming, though, we're going to have glorified bodies. We're going to have bodies physically that will be able to handle this and contain it. But until then, we see his glory in a mirror. What does that mean, in a mirror? I know that immediately we think, well, you know, we look in a mirror and we see reflection and it comes back. And, and that could very well be what is being uh, portrayed here, the idea of looking in a mirror. If that is the case in those days, the mirrors were not like our mirrors. Like our mirrors are so precise and so clear. The mirrors of that day were a little bit dull, you know, with polished metal or something like that. Now try getting, you know, go and take a piece of metal and polish it till you can, you can see a reflection in it, but not as clearly as what you can in the mirrors that we have today. So maybe that's what's here. There is another meaning for this word, though, which we translate mirror in a lot of our English translations. The other idea of it, and some of the verses render this idea of it, is through a glass that is dull, it's hard to look through. And so it could be a mirror that reflects, but it could also be this idea, and if you study the, the, the original language, you will understand this, that it could be like looking through this glass, what they would do is they would take, I think it was mica, you know, the rock mica, and they would take these thin sheets of mica, and they would allow just some light to come through, and they would use that as windows in some of the buildings in those days. And so just a little bit of light would come through, but it wasn't like looking through glass the way we look through. You can see everything. And so maybe it's that metaphor here. Either one of them is saying, we just can't see it all right now. But we just get through these through this kind of dullness of our own life and existence here in this world. But we see, even, even in that, we see something of the glory of God. Dimly through that glass. How, then... What is going on here when he says that we are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord? It's like he's saying we get these little glimpses of the glory of God. And as these glimpses of the glory of God, through the Holy Spirit, speak to us, Spirit revealing God to us in all these different ways, it starts to transform us into the likeness of Christ. How does that work? Well, I'm convinced that one of the glories, it says from glory to glory, one of the glories that transforms us is the Word of God. And there's a sense in which the Word of God is like a mirror, or it's like we can't, you know, it is God's Word. We, it's not like God himself, but when we look into the Word of God and the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, speaking into our hearts, somehow is revealing something about God to us. It's like we get a glimpse of the glory of God. And so the Word of God has a transforming effect on our life. But I think it even goes beyond that, brothers and sisters. I'm convinced that even in the experiences of life that we go through, 
as we experience things in life and as we walk with God through those experiences, and when we cry out to God and we lean on him and we look to him, even in those experiences of life, God reveals something of who he is to us. And we have walked through one of the most awful experiences, the most awful experience that we have ever had in our life. And there is no question in my mind that even in that pain, God is revealing something of his glory to us through that, something that we would never have seen if we had not walked through that pain. Would I choose that pain? No, I would write this moment reverse time if I could. But God has a purpose to transform me and Jackie and our family somehow through this experience that we are walking through. He is revealing himself to us in a way we would never know him any other way. Those of you that walk through pain and difficulty, whatever form it is, you know that's true. And sometimes, how is it the glory of God? Sometimes it is in that, in that beautifully, think of that scene, Elijah, right, in the wilderness, in the still, small voice, when we are near him, it's like God reveals something of who he is. I think just even in those times when we're quiet before God, when we're alone with him, and it might be literally in the outdoors. A brother talked about being in the outdoors. I love that. Some of my most, I'm going to use this word, transcendent moments. I don't want you to think I'm floating or anything like that, but you know what I mean. Some of the times where I felt closest to God have been when I'm out in the outdoors. But it could be sitting in my living room, just sitting there praying. It could be walking along the road. And in that, it's the sense of the closeness of God, being near him in his presence, and that still small voice. There's something of his glory that's being revealed to me in that. And all these little glimpses from glory to glory, these little glories, if you will, it's like the process of this. What is God doing by his Holy Spirit through all of these things? What is he doing? He's transforming us, changing us into his image. And the thing that we see so clearly in this is that becoming like Christ is not an academic exercise. It doesn't mean we don't use our brains and we don't study our Bibles. That's not what I'm saying. But it is not that that equates a transformation. Transformation spiritually, whether it's in salvation, whether it's in sanctification, is always by revelation and the Holy Spirit of God revealing God to us. And he transforms us more and more into his likeness. But we're not, we're not there yet, are we? I, I mean, the process is beginning here, glory and glory and glory, little things, little things. But there's a day coming, brothers and sisters, when the fullness, we're going to see the fullness of his glory. And in that moment, when that day comes, we will be like him. We will be transformed completely. The work will be done when we look on the fullness of the glory of God. Let me give you a verse that supports that, okay? First John 3, verse 2, you can turn to it if you want. You can just listen to it as I read it. A lot of you can quote this verse. First John 3, 2, he says, Beloved, John says, Beloved, now we are children of God. We're born again of the Spirit. We belong to him. So we're children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but I love what he says. What does he say? We know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall, you finish the verse, see him, see him as he is. 
What is John saying here? He's saying that when we see the fullness of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, and Paul's going to get into that, and we'll get into it next week in verse 6 of chapter 4, when we see that, it will completely and totally transform us. And the process that began here and these little glories in our life to change us will be culminated into this completeness where we will be like him because we will what? See him. We will see him. Isn't that beautiful? Well, John doesn't say we're going to get to heaven and this computer chip will be put in our brain and we're going to have all the knowledge of who God is. He doesn't say that. He says we're going to see him. When we see him in his glory, it will completely and totally and finally transform us. Are you looking forward to that day? Like never, never, never before am I just so looking forward to that day. I think about it all the time. Because I think about the fact that my son is there. And he's seeing the glory of God. And he's seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And while I here humanly want to cling to him and bring him back, and it's so hard to let go, to think of where he is looking on the glory of God. It's like I said earlier, if I could just see that for even 10 seconds. And I long for the day that I see that glory, and I see him, and I see my dad who is there now looking on the glory of God. What an amazing destiny we have, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are going to be glorified. You know, there are so many verses in the New Testament that tell us that. Let me read some of them for you quickly in closing. Verse Romans 8.30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Who he justified, these he also glorified. Second Corinthians 4.17, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Colossians 1.27, God willed to make known to you what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then 3.4 in Colossians, when Christ who is our life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And I've got a whole bunch more, but I'm going to stop. It just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. That's our destiny, brothers and sisters to be glorified with him. It's beginning now, right? These little glories that God reveals transforming us as we with unveiled faces through the Holy Spirit look on God. We see these little glimpses through these this dull, this dark glass or through this mirror. We don't see the fullness yet, but that's that's what we're headed for. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much for the hope, hope of Christ. We thank you, Father, that while we live in this world, you are already beginning this work of changing us. We thank you, Father, it is so amazing to think that the Holy Spirit of God, literally that God lives in us, Christ in you, Paul says, hope of glory. So it's begun already. The deposit is here, as we thought about earlier this morning in the Lord's Supper. The deposit, the guarantee, is in us already. And, and, and we want to live whatever time you give us in this life. Oh, God, help us to do this. Help me to do this, Father. To live my life whatever time I have here for your glory, for your honor. To shine, as it were, the light of Christ. Whatever way we can through our lives, through the way that we live. 
And Father, that you would change us, that you would continue to work in our lives to change us, to change us, to change us from glory to glory, to make us more like your Son. And in all of that, we long for that day when we will look on the fullness of your glory. And in that moment, in that instant, we will be transformed into your likeness, and the old sin nature will fall away forever. We just thank you for this incredible hope that we have in Christ. I ask for your blessing on your people, through your word, by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.